Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Each week, we bring you in-depth conversations with some of the biggest names in filmmaking. It's October 14th, 2015. I'm Michael Odemark, one of the show's producers. Today, you'll hear two highlights from the 53rd New York Film Festival, which concluded this past weekend. Part one comes from an NYFF live talk with director Danny Boyle, whose new film, Steve Jobs, was the festival's centerpiece selection and opens nationwide next weekend. After that, we'll go to this year's On Cinema Masterclass with Taiwanese filmmaker Ho Shao Shen, whose new martial arts epic, The Assassin, opens here at the Film Society this weekend. Both conversations were part of a series of filmmaker talks sponsored by HBO. What do you do? You're not an engineer. You're not a designer. You can't put a hammer to a nail. I built the circuit board. The graphical interface was stolen. So how come 10 times in a day, I read Steve Jobs as a genius? What do you do? Musicians play their instruments. I play the orchestra. Steve Jobs brings together screenwriter Aaron Sorkin and director Danny Boyle to produce a fresh and exciting portrait of the iconic founder of Apple. The film had its New York premiere at the festival, where critics praised its infectious energy and powerhouse performances. Rodrigo Perez at IndieWire described it as a rush of blood to the head, and Kenneth Turan at the LA Times called it a smart, hugely entertaining film that all but bristles with crackling creative energy. During the festival, Danny Boyle joined IndieWire's Eric Cohn on stage in our amphitheater to talk about his approach to the film's unique structure, Sorkin's rapid-fire script, and his plans for a sequel to Trainspotting. So let's go now to that conversation. Make everything all right with Lisa. Fix it! Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome. It's it's no secret that this project was around before you were involved with it, but you made it your own thing. So what was it like to encounter not just this story, but this particular project as it was in flux and, and kind of figure out you know, your way into it? Well, it was, um, I mean, you, I, I, I knew about the stuff about Fincher dropping out. He, you know, he's a director I really admire a lot. And, uh, and uh, you know, I, I didn't know what was going on. I mean, you just read IMDb and he's dropped out and they're all... <laughs> And then they're all, I don't know what, they're all, they're all probably brief, you think they're probably briefing against each other about why he dropped out and all that kind of stuff. You imagine all that sort of stuff going on. And I, I, I mean, um, Christian, where's Christian? Is he here? Yeah, there he is. So uh, the, uh, Christian and I worked together and we, um, we worked together on a number of films and we generate our own material really. And, and, and before I knew Christian, I did as well with the producer Andrew McDonald and we tend to kind of, we have a very small bunch of writers that we tend to work with. And I'd never, I really had never done a Hollywood project. I'd never done something that was generated elsewhere and, and, and like fully formed. Um, and, and, and so Scott Rudin rang up and said, do, do you want to read it? And, and I said, I'd be delighted to. Um, and it was astonishing. I mean, it was an astonishing experience reading it just because it was so, it was so original and imaginative about how to approach biopics. I'm not a biopic fan. I, I, and I'd, we'd done one before about Aaron Ralston, the guy who got trapped in that canyon. But again, like this one, it was like based on, it wasn't like a life story from the beginning to end or skimming along. It was um, an intense experience of one event. In the, and in the Jobs case, it's three events. 
um, as a way of looking at somebody. And I think it's a more interesting way of doing it. And this guy's motto was think different. You know, so you would expect somebody like Sorkin, with all that confidence he's got and all that ability, to tackle it in a different way. And he did, of course, in a really imaginative way. So it was exhilarating reading it. But it was also like, what role is there for a director in it? You know, because it's like, it's 185 pages of dialogue, whereas most movies are, you know, 120 pages, of which half of his dialogue and the rest is description. There was no description in this. You know, there's no guide, no manual to how to do it. There's just like interior day continuous, 185 pages, and that's it. I mean, seriously. It's that's lurking. Like. So, and of course, you realize quite quickly that it's an invitation. Of course, if you, see, if you look at it in the right way, it's an invitation, you know, it's, it's a, or even a provocation to actually, can you do anything with it? Well, you hit on something really interesting, bringing up 127 hours, because if there is some sort of connective tissue to a lot of your films, it's this sense of being in confined spaces, whether it's in that canyon or a spaceship, or in this case, back room with Steve Jobs for two hours. So, I mean, one of the challenges that you must have faced is making this movie visually interesting, right? What is it, what it is really interesting, it's, it's that, I don't know whether it's a British kind of SN thing or... I don't know what it is, but the restriction is really liberating. I mean, it really, no, seriously, it's like really, because you can, I mean, you can, when you, if you have a hit, like we had a hit with Slumdog, it was a massive hit. And after that, you can sort of spend a lot of money if you want and do anything you want, sort of, within kind of certain limits. But we never did because we kind of, there is something about being, I don't know whether it's siege mentality or um, it's something about that you, you have to think in a different way. You just have to approach it in a different way. If you limit your budget, which we tend to do, we tend to always try and work below $20 million so that you, um, and, it's, and it's a self-imposed restriction and it, because it does influence the kind of material you do as well. Um, or you go for projects that have that inbuilt um, um, demand of you, which is how are you going to make this cinematic? How are you going to kind of open this out or make it compelling and... Um, and this had that in it, yeah, because it was, it was three, it was three, it felt very, when you read it, it was very it, it's cyclical, you know, it's the same six characters who meet three times in the same 40 minutes before these launches. So that was always, whereas you know that cinema, you want it to be progressive and to feel urgent and linear and forward moving, because movies do that, they move forward, you know, constantly. Um, I, always rem I always remember we, we, we were... I tried to do this film once about um, these ama this amazing story about those firemen in Worcester. I don't know whether any of you remember it. Six of them lost their lives, which was the, it was a coal storage fire uh, in an old Victorian coal storage in, in Worcester in Massachusetts. And before 9-11, it was the single greatest loss of life in the fire department in, in history in one, in, on one occasion. Anyway, um, the, the main character in it died halfway through. And I remember talking to Tim Robbins to... Um, do the part, and it was a brilliant part, I mean, dazzling part, although he died halfway. And he said, I'm not going to do that. He said, because nobody will remember me. Because nobody remembers anybody who dies halfway. And I thought, that's really shallow. <laughs> but actually, ever since then, I thought, he's right, isn't he? You just don't. You kind of like, you just, it's always about forward momentum. You kind of like carry forward like that, and you don't look back. And it's not a reflective medium in the way that like a novel is or something like that. It's always about forward, forward motion, really. So, uh, so we, we wanted to, so, so sorry, we, 
the three parts we made very different in all aspects, music, the format which we used, the, the places we shot, and we wanted it to make it feel like it was progressing and moving forward into a future, which is actually, ironically, 1998, but it felt like it's the moving into the future. Yeah. But that, that's a really interesting point. I mean, anyone who knows the trajectory of Steve Jobs' career knows that a lot of stuff came before this movie starts and a lot of stuff came afterwards. So you're, you're, jumping, us right, right, you're jumping right into the thick of it, and you leave us at a certain pivotal moment. How much did you feel like you needed to kind of get, you know, sort of read up on this topic and, and get to know kind of the, the other details that aren't there uh, in order to tackle this particular person and, and his accomplishments? I mean, it was very, I mean, it, w it was very complete. I mean, we changed some things, and he was wonderful to work with Aaron to make changes. He was very flexible. He has a reputation that he's not, and he was and completely both with us in, in prep and, uh, and, and then with the actors in actual, you know, in rehearsals, um, hugely flexible, but it was pretty much fully formed. Yeah, you do your research, you know, you want to make sure that you do your research, and the Walter Isaacson book is very thorough, you know, it's an enormous fund of knowledge that you can turn to, and obviously it had been commissioned by Steve Jobs himself, although the family supposedly were not pleased with it by the end, he had certainly commissioned it, and gave, Isaac, according to Isaacson anyway, gave him complete freedom to do whatever he wanted. Much in the way that that Rupert Murdoch book, have you read that Rupert Murdoch book um, by Michael Wolfe? Because he, who's, you think, why did he, but he let that guy in and gave him complete access <laughs> and complete freedom to write whatever he wanted. And it's weird. And he has a very interesting thesis at the end of that book, because he says he thinks it's because Mur Murdoch has this instinct in him. He's a gambler. And he likes to shake things up uncontrollably occasionally. When he thinks things are settling too much, he just wants to th introduce the shockwave to everything. And that's why he did it. But why Jobs did it? I think maybe he just thought, because I think he knew he was ill, um, and maybe he just thought, I should hand it over somehow. You know, and that the control thing that had dominated so much of his life and his work and he's represented in the film very clearly at this end-to-end -end control he wants. Maybe he'd begun to let go of that a little bit. I don't know. Well, it, it's, a, it's a good point because none of your characters are, are generally 100% perfect. You know, in, in some ways, it's, it's a challenge to the traditional Hollywood mode of storytelling. I mean, there's a lot of ambiguity here. Were there ever moments when you were making the movie where, where you, you had to have a conversation about, you know, would he really say this, would he really be this mean, or is he not being mean enough, maybe? Um, it's pretty well documented what he was like. And, and even those who, who adored him and were devoted to him, and there are many of those people, acknowledge that there was that side of him. So you can't really make this film in a kind of likable kind of way. You know, you'd be it would be ludicrous to do that. Although that doesn't stop the executives ringing up saying, is there any chance he can be more likable <laughs> as they look to the rushes? <laughs> but, you know, we'd hired the wrong actor because Michael is, and the reason that we hired Michael, Michael is an un a brilliant actor, but he is also uncompromising in what he does. You know, those are his choices. That's his whole working method. It's, you know, he's not going to look to make the guy have a bit more of the likability factor now and again. You know, it's like, it's relentless pursuit of honesty and truth as, you know, as, 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 as he's presented to him by Sorkin's script, you know, so, um, but yeah, no, the studio obviously are always trying to make things more likable. Well, since so. you mentioned Fassbender, I mean, how, how much of that was you sort of giving him some guidance? I mean, we know he's a great actor, but this performance is 
its own class, really. It is. It's, I think it's on a different planet, and I, 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 I you, you, they go, they're in a process. You can, you can help a little bit, but it's not a lot. It's them, really. And what you're doing is you're kind of using, you're using different tools to shape it and to be sometimes in a way that you share with them and sometimes in a way that's cunning and you're not letting them know what you're doing in a way. But, you're, but you are dedicated to the same thing, which is the deliverance of that performance. And you could feel he was... I mean, it's extraordinary, those of you who've seen it, in the first part, that sort of... I mean, it's very um, accurate, uh, or it feels it to me, of this guy, you know, and he's kind of trying to punch his way through the world, you know, because he's got this vision and there's so much resistance in the way, and he, he has to make people try and believe in something which was impossible to think of at the time. Because, and that's why we start with the Arthur C. Clarke and the wall of, you know, the, a room of computers because they were intimidating, they were cold, impersonal, frightening things. And he is this guy with this vision of something that you will fall in love with, literally have a relationship with um, that's like romantic. And it is true, isn't it? We go to bed, I'll bet of all you lot, 98% of you take it to bed with you. And, and it's the last thing you look at, and it'll be the first thing you look at when you wake up. And some of you will be leaving it on monitoring what you're doing while you sleep. I mean, and, and it, that's like the Spike Jones film, isn't it? Which is absurd, but not so absurd. But he saw that. He knew it was going to go like that. Um, so that's, that's incredible. Um, but anyway, so he, in that first act, Michael is also... I think you can see him wrestling with just the scale of what he's trying to, what he's been asked to do. It's like a kind of wrestling match with this gigantic Hamlet, Lear, Hal part, all wrapped in one, really. Um, and what happened is that he's kind of, by the time we got to the third part, he'd done it. And you could feel him just like, he, he knew he was on it then. And it was weird. I mean, the, the crew will confirm this as well. You could, you could have, he could have just read out the phone book. He could have just read out numbers in the phone book for 15 minutes. And we'd have just been watching him. Because he'd kind of gone in a zone then, which was like, I have no idea what Jobs was like. I just know what you know from YouTube and stuff like that. But it felt authentic. Like what? it had that incredible, brutal truth about it that it felt like this was... And that's what, I think that's what he does as an actor. He's trying to move towards that point. He's trying to zone in on that wave, really, that, that, that it's effortless. And you don't even have to be saying lines. You're just on it somehow, you know? And you also have to meld him with the environment. Because, I mean, if, if he's great and everything else doesn't sync up, that would stand out. But you have these really interesting supporting roles. Somebody like Kate Winslet, who's sort of chasing him around the whole time. Or Seth Rogen, who pops up. And, you know, that's a name that carries all kinds of expectations that I think this movie subverts in really interesting ways. So what was it like to kind of modulate expectations for those, for those actors as well? Well, she was dead. She wanted to do it because it was very different for her. You know, she didn't want to... And people do watch it, and they sort of know Kate Winslet is in it, and they get to the end of the first part. A, a number of people said this, and they thought, oh, blimey, that must have been Kate Winslet, because otherwise we're, <laughs> she, was, she isn't in the movie. And they realize, in retrospect, that, that... So she loved that fact that she could lose herself in that. But it's very free performance, because her and Michael had a relationship much like they have in the film. They were kind of like lovers, except for the physical bit. I mean, it was just like... And they were like that. They were sort of bossy and catty and kind of all that kind of stuff with each other, really. Um, like, a, like, a, like, a, like, a, like a work couple. 
an absolute, you know, work, the perfect work couple, doing sort of reading each other's minds, you know? Um, and a very convincing Polish accent, which helps. An astonishing detail that she goes into with that side of it. I mean, uh, the amount of time she spent on it. I mean, the, uh, there, anyway. Um, and Seth. Well, Seth, of course, we, we had Seth. We'd wanted Seth right from the beginning. And then, of course, he nearly closed the Sony studio um, with the whole... <laughs> <laughs> And it was like, that was the chance to get rid of him if there ever was one. But we didn't want to, because he was wonderful casting for Woz. Because he is Woz. He doesn't look like Woz, except he sort of does in a weird way. But he is Woz. Because Woz is an engineering genius, and Seth is a comedy genius. But they're also, the other side of him, as he argued, he's also a very decent man. Truly decent. And Woz is as well. And that's a wonderful thing, because he's got that great line. It's not binary, you know, you can be decent and gifted at the same time. And he truly embodies that, really, in a way that was really, uh, that was lovely for me to witness. Because when you get a comedian and they want to do something proper and serious, it's a wonderful thing, you know, the transformation. You get something extra, I don't quite know what it is, but there is something special you get from them. Well, speaking of transformation, we have to talk about the, the more specific visual strategy that you use here, which is that you shoot in different formats, which is... A, bold feat for any filmmaker of any kind of scale, but it's especially interesting to see how you go from shooting on film to digital here because it's not, it's not over the top, but it certainly does have different kinds of connotations. So what was it like to, to uh, approach a movie like that? Yeah, it was weird. It was Kushler. We had this cinematographer, Alvin Kushler. We made this film together, Sunshine. He's a wonderful cinematographer, and he moved to America. He's from Germany originally, from Dusseldorf. But he was based in London, amazing cinematographer. Bit precious. We had a few battles on Sunshine um, <laughs> about schedule and stuff like that. But he's changed. Um, he, no, he, no, he's moved to America and he changed. No, he did move to America because his daughter, he's got a young daughter who's brilliant at tennis. And if you're going to be any good at tennis, you have to move to Florida. So they did. They moved to Florida. You know, seriously, it's like, it's proper. You have to be, and, and anyway, and... So he started working within the American system, and it kind of changed him a bit, I think. He got knocked about a bit, I think. <laughs> he did some big movies, some really big movies. And, um, but there's w he is wonderful as well. And anyway, we started talking about it, about how we would separate the three acts. And he said, why don't we do it on three different formats? You know? And it is great, because, of course, there, there, you know, there's all that discussion at the moment about will film will film survive and certain filmmakers insist still on using it but they're the only ones and everything else is the equipment is being pack, pa packed away for, and put in museums and stuff like that you know um, but suddenly we had a last chance in a way 60 I don't know how much longer 16 will survive because it's it's very it's very time consuming to work on it now because you have to wait so long for it to be processed um, but we did the first act on 16 because it felt like homemade you know, it, it wasn't just about that it looked slightly old. It felt homemade, you know, um, because it was rough, slightly rough. And he, he is at that, even though he's worth $400 million already, he thinks of himself as an absolute rebel, you know, and, and knocking down the great edifice of IBM, you know, the pirate. They call themselves pirates. And um, so it suited that kind of punkish spirit, really. So that's what it felt like. And it also helped disguise the fact that the actors were pretending that they were 27, when in fact they're f they were 39 or 40. That helps because it's so soft. I mean, we've got so used to high def now. When you, when you look, look at 16, it's like nothing's in focus. It's like everything's, everything's soft in it, you know? So, um, 
And then we moved, and then we moved to 35, because the second part is a, a more illu- it's about an illusion, really. And it's a, and it, and, and it's a very ornate, conceited act, or, or part of the story, where this computer is launched that actually isn't what it seems. And we set it in an opera house, the, the opera house in San Francisco, which is a, very, which is a bow arts theater, and it's very gilded and ornate. And, 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 and 35 is a, is a beautiful medium for that. It, 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 it sulks it up. And it's a wonderful, you know, it's the ultimate storytelling format, really, in a way. And one was still ad- addicted to you. I don't think most people see the huge difference in the formats as it happens. But you hope something unconscious is conveyed to people as well. And, um, and, and, then, and then we moved to the future, which was the Alexa camera, which is the camera of the, the choice of the moment, you know, that is a digital camera with huge resolution. And it, 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 in, 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 historically speaking, it's not quite accurate. It wasn't around in 98. We hadn't really moved to the red or anything like that. Um, but of course, Jobs had, because he'd already released Toy Story in 96. And I remember seeing Toy Story in a cinema with my kids and being really shocked in a way that you, I mean, you probably remember it the first time you saw it. It was like, this has changed everything. I mean, you rarely get a moment like that in your life where you think, holy shit, that everything's going to be different from now on, which it was in the animated world. Um, so we wanted to sort of reflect that. And, 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 and then the designer, Guy Hendrix Dias, he, he designed this dressing room that looked like his mind. He got everything he wanted, the clean lines, the... The, the, the cool colors, the, you know, everything was what he wanted it to be, yeah. So we're going to open it up to an audience Q&A here. Uh, maybe just before we go to, to questions, uh, you started out by saying how you'd never really done a project like this before. So how has it affected what you want to do going forward? No, you, 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 um, you always want to, I want to have a break from Aaron Sorkin. Cause you, <laughs> no, because you... Because you, 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 end up, you end up talking like him, though not quite as well. <laughs> but the words go round in your head and you're having these discussions with people and you suddenly start using phrases that are in the film because really, there's, there's quite a turn on them. And you, think, and you feel a bit of a charlatan, to be absolutely honest. Cause everybody, so you've got to have a bit of a break from Aaron, I think. Um, uh, but no, we're, gonna do, uh, we're doing, a, uh, we're doing a, a sequel to Trainspotting. We're actually... Yeah. No, um, so we've got, a, we've got a, a very good script by the original writer, John Hodge, who wrote the original screenplay of the first one. And it's like 20 years later, and it's, um, it's the same actors. And, um, you know, it's sort of what, you know, it's like 20 years later in a friendship, really. So, so that's what we're going to do next year. Very exciting. All right, let's take these questions. Let's start right up front here. I was quite frankly blown away by looking at the film. And I, and I emphasize looking because so much of what Jobs did was aesthetically pleasurable. And I wondered what the, um, how you contained yourself within knowing that every Mac or Apple lover is gonna look at this film and see how does it look and how does it sound? I, I mean, in the relationship with the production designer and the sound designer. Yeah, well he's worked, uh, the, the, the production designer had worked for, uh, He'd actually worked for Apple and Sony, you know, years ago. So he'd, d- he'd done a lot of the product stuff, really. That was, that was that's some of his background. So he was very smart on all that, really. And we were in the right town. We, des- we, we, we deliberately shot in San Francisco. Um, you, can, you can save a lot of money, which the studio wanted us to. Um, you can film in Hungary and save $5 million. 
you can shoot in London and save $3 million, you know, all the tax breaks, because it's just interiors of theaters, people argued. But we really wanted to shoot in San Francisco because obviously that town has changed the world. I mean, literally in the last 30 years. It's, and, we're, and we're just living through it now, and who knows where we're gonna end up because of it. Um, so it felt like the right thing to do. And there were many hidden benefits you got from that, one of which, of course, was not so hidden. It, there's a lots of people there who were experts, in fact, who were at the original launches, and actually Tolk came back and gave us advice about how to do it and got the equipment working. But I mean, the, 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 the equipment, we had this kid called Thomas Fricker, who was at college in North Carolina or somewhere like that. And he flew in. He's the only guy that could get this computer working, one of the next computers. I mean, they just, you know, he's a native, a digital native. And he just, and he came in for free and, and helped us. And so there's a lot of devotion to the man and the history and, you know, the, the, how important these products are to our, like my generation, but also younger generations as well. So um, that, was, that was wonderful, yeah. And the music, well, Daniel's here. Yeah, there he is. He did the music. Daniel, that's Daniel Pemberton up there in the, in the corner. <laughs> and he's, um, and we talked actually about, um, we're just going to go off and do a, a Q&A together actually with the editor, Elliot. Are you here, Elliot? No, Elliot's not here. Yeah, there he is. So, so that's our editor actually. Um, yeah. Elliot Graham. And they were amazing because what we did is we, I, I don't know whether you know this, but what you do when you make a film, especially when, if it's going to be, if you're going to be guaranteed some kind of release, you do t test screenings and stuff. So the habit has grown, which is um, in the last 20 years, I guess, of temp music. So you shoot the film and you put temp music on it and it's usually either from another movie or it's songs or something like that. And then you test it. And if your testing goes well, the composer then is in a terrible place because you go Daniel this is tested really well when it sounds exactly like this and then he's kind of he's got the he's, he, can he do something completely original or does he do a, an imitation of that and we wanted to try and avoid that on this so what we did is Daniel worked on stuff like Ennio Marocconi does which is that he wrote a lot of it before we started we just talked about the three different acts and what we wanted, and then he watched rushes as they came in. But before he saw cuts, he would, and, and then Elliot would cut the film to the music. So that when we were ready, we'd show it to Daniel and say, well, it's your music, Daniel, it's working really well. So do a kind of a version of that. So it's sort of weird and we were really, it, it doesn't seem like it, but it's very innovative way of working, which was very, I mean, Ennio Morricone does it, so it's not completely innov innovative, but that's <laughs> supposedly how they work. But, but, um, well, versions of it, really. I mean, Daniel updated them and changed them and stuff like that, but actually, yeah, it was, um, and there were three different musical approaches to each act. Obviously, the middle act's very operatic and. Yeah, and the first stack's very early computer sounds. Let's see so, yeah. a question from over here. and see a hand down near the front in the hat. Yeah. Uh, I won't brag about the glorious football match between Arsenal and Man U yesterday, uh, but... Um, <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. Um, my question is, I grew up using the iMac. You'll regret that, mate. Come the end of the season, you'll think <laughs> back. Right. I, I you'll think <laughs> back, you'll look at the grosses of the Steve Jobs movie, and you'll look at the Premier League table, and you'll remember. 
I, uh, I uh, used the iMac when I was in grade school, and I was just astounded by how accurately it was reproduced. And uh, could you talk about that process? Because watching that, actually, the iMac brought tears to my eyes because I, I used that. And I remember when they cycled out the old Mac, th those old Macs that were like brown, and, and they cycled those out and got those new ones in. I remember using those. Well, of course, that was his dream because, I mean, that is the turning point because it, more than any other computer, it put the internet in everybody's home and that we got one in our home. But the other thing, even more importantly than that, is it made computers cool. I mean, properly cool, like desirable, sexy cool, which you'd never been able to, de to describe a computer as sexy before then. But suddenly it was sexy and cool, and that's what he wanted. So that the process by which we would eventually take these things to bed with us had begun, really. They were a bit cumbersome at that time, still, to actually take to bed with you. But it was on the cards. We were on the slope then. And I think that's what... So we, it was great to do it, because... Um, yeah, we... And, we and, it, and it's the cheat in the whole film, because we never show any of the launches. But, of course, in that one, because you get the beginning of the third act where he's practicing, you get a little bit of the launch, and you see a little bit what they did. You can get them eBay. It's just like you get anything on eBay. I mean, literally, it's like no, un unbelievable like what you can get on eBay. Yeah, seriously. A question way in the back there. Thanks so much. Um, just two quick questions. Uh, today happens to be October 5th, which is the yes. fourth anniversary of Steve Josh's death. If you have any, any, any comment on that. And second, uh, I'm aware that Irvin Welsh actually wrote the sequel to Train Spotting a number of years ago. Is your and John Hodge's screenplay going to have anything to do with that? I, um, in, I mean, Irving's involved as a kind of, he's involved as one of the partners on the film. We've set up a sort of partnership amongst us all to make the film, and he's one of the partners of the film. It's the idea of them coming back together again. In the, in the book, it's 10 years. Um, ours is 20 years, and it's, and it's very different, really. So, but, it, but it will be called an adaptation, but it won't be called porno. We're going to try and call it T2. If we can get James Cameron's lawyers <laughs> to permit us, we will call it T2. But we may have to do something crafty and call it something else. I don't oh. know. But anyway, we'll see. Yes, and it is the anniversary. Um, it's the anniversary of his passing away. Um, and, uh, but there, there's no... I mean, our film is released on um, Friday, but there was no intention of that coinciding at all. There was no... Because uh, you don't want to kind of... Um, you know, it's, it's a personal loss for people. But he is a huge figure and a huge public figure who has shaped our lives. And we felt, I always felt it was very important that these films are made, just like Social Network was made, just like The Circle, the, you know, that's a book I love, the Dave Eggers book, which is sort of about Google and Apple all together, really, in the future. And, and, and it's very important to keep making these films about these people. So. There's another question up here. Um, uh, Steve Jobs, I guess the word you'd use is intimidating. Um, I actually had a chance to interview him, and he was intimidating. Um, how did you, uh, in interacting with Michael, did you get that feeling of intimidation from him, or did you give him, in, in, where was that interaction? That Was there an intimidating element throughout? Michael is a very intimidating actor. I mean, I think you know from his roles, he's a very nice guy, but actually his roles, his screen persona, his intense... You know, he's also, which I think you've got a little glimpse of, 
in, uh, in the Tarantino movie, in, in Glorious Bastards, he's also got a touch of the Cary Grant in there, which is what, you know, people don't, you don't see, he's very funny, you know, very witty. And you don't see it, it's not a laugh out loud film, this one, but he's setting up gags, him and Winslet. They're just setting up stuff for each other. And it's the actor's reflex of understanding wit and humor, you know, which we benefited from. But he is intimidating. And, and I think it's wonderful for the part because he clearly, when jo Joanna Hoffman, the, the, the real Joanna Hoffman came in and talked to us and she used to say, you know, that's what she said to Michael, make sure you get that glare. Make sure you get that glare because it was there when he needed it. Um, and Michael can do that. Absolutely no problem at all. And it is about that you kind of, you're not like recreating reality. You're, you're trying to produce something of the same intense or even more intensity than reality. That's sort of what we were trying to do. So it wasn't an impersonation or, you know, he wasn't meant to look exactly like him all the time. And we, we didn't want him to have prosthetic surgery or, you know, <laughs> knock his teeth out or all those kind of things, which is the slippery slope when you do the kind of impersonation, which is how far do you go? You know, to turn people into somebody else, and it was right. it, it, we wanted him to arrive at it in a different way, which he did, I think. So yeah. So let's take one more that quick one. Okay. All right, let's do that guy. Um, you've probably been asked this question before, but a couple of years ago there was a movie about Steve Jobs, and um, um, my first question: Have you seen it? And my second: Have you had this thought that I have to do something better, better than that it it was before? And second question: When you film a movie based on a true story. Do you feel like there is a sm less uh, space for art and more that we have to stick with the documentary, with the story? I, I haven't seen, I mean, know the movie you're referring to, but uh, which I have seen. I, I hadn't seen it. I watched it, obviously, once we'd started the project because they didn't want to copy anything inadvertently. Um, just because that's boring, you know, you wouldn't want to kind of, you wanted to do it differently. Um, I haven't seen Gibney's documentary because we didn't get a chance to see it, and it's so close to our opening now, but I'll look forward to seeing it. Um, uh, the big thing for me was actually social network, actually. And a lot of people said, oh, don't re reference that. You know, look at the West Wing and stuff like that. But actually, I, I, the fact that Fincher had done one of these, I found enormously helpful. And I, it was a film I loved when it came out, and I studied it quite carefully, you know, and I saw what amazing work he did on it to actually, again, deliver it and enhance it, you know? And it's an amazing movie because it is a sitting-down movie. It's literally the whole movie. I mean, a major motion picture, and people very rarely stand. And that's amazing, actually, if you think about it. Um, very clever, the way he does it. And then when he does stand, like when... I don't know if you remember the amazing scene when Garfield stands and goes over and smashes the computer on them when he realizes he's been betrayed. It's just incredible power about it. You know, so it's very clever, all that. So I found that very helpful and as an inspiration. And, and ours was all a standing-up movie because Jobs was into the walk and talk, uh, which is featured in that other film as well. You know, that, and people spoke about him. He would much prefer to walk and talk rather than actually have meetings in, in front of whiteboards and stuff like that. So that, that, was the bigger, that was the bigger influence rather than any other movie, actually. The, and, I felt it, and I felt that we are in a lineage very much from Social Network with this film. And, and I'm very proud to be like that with it, really. And if it's, if it's half as good, we'll have, done, we'll have come out well out of it, you know. So, um, so that was the idea, yeah. Well, you've certainly captured something real, as evinced by all the iPhones that have been popping up over the course of the last half hour. Um, I'd like to ask everyone to please stay seated so Danny can bolt out of here. But thanks for being here, and thanks for being so great. Thank you. Thanks, man. Well done, Eric. Cheers.
剑术已成。唯不能斩绝人伦之情。Every year during the New York Film Festival, we invite a master of filmmaking to discuss their cinematic influences. Past guests have included Paul Thomas Anderson and Alexander Payne, and during this year's festival, we were thrilled to welcome Taiwanese director Ho Shaoshen. The event, titled On Cinema, featured a selection of clips curated by the director and an in-depth conversation moderated by festival director Kent Jones. With the help of a translator, Ho talked about his diverse influences. From Godard to Neruse, and how they contributed to his latest film, *The Assassin*, which opens here at the Film Society this weekend. Let's go now to their conversation. I also want to say welcome to、uh, Vincent Cheng, who's the greatest translator I've ever seen, as you'll find out soon. <laughs> um, the movies that we're going to show、uh, start with、um, the first clip that we're going to show is from Godard's *Breathless*, which is the film that Ho Shaoshen selected. But can you talk about? You had just said backstage that there was a community of filmmakers, including you and Edward Young and others, who started watching these movies at a certain point. And I'm wondering if you could talk about those days when you were discovering these movies. You 刚提到说我们现在放的第一部片是《断了气》。你说这很多这些片子，你选的这些片子呢？ So when I was young or younger,、uh, at the time that、uh, a group of filmmakers that we actually will hang out at Edward Young's house. Uh, home and it's a Japanese-style home, and then they will, will be sitting on this tatami, which is Japanese mattress. And then、uh, these directors include Wan Ren, Zhen Zhuangxiang, Xiao Ye, Wu Nianzhen, of course, Edward Yang. And so、uh, at the time, even though that we are not really young, young in terms of in age, but we are young as filmmakers, that we still we feel very, very fresh, very, very eager, very, very ambitious about the films that we are about to make. And, and, and Godard's *Breathless* was one of the films that really opened up your vision of cinema. Uh, we were that group of people together. Actually, had a background. So the films that we watched at the time, a little bit historical backgrounds. That these are、uh, films that been made after World War II in from different countries. So you have、uh, film being made、uh, in Italy, the whole neo-realism. Uh, movements, including the Bicycle Thief, and then in France you have Godard, Breathless, you have Truffaut's、uh, uh, 400 Blows, and then in Germany, of course, then you have this also new cinema with Fassbender, and、uh, so these are the films that we actually will watch and we will discuss them, and some of them,、uh, if not these European films, they will watch a lot of Japanese old films, and、um, one of which is by this director.、Uh, The name he cannot remember, but it's about youth.、Mm -hmm. Nakisa Oshima. 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 Okay. And then another name that we mentioned backstage was was Pasolini. And also、Rex. Pasolini. Yes. 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 Pasolini. Just、mm -hmm. Oedipus the King. That、uh, yeah. 那个片子对 Oedipus the King. Yeah. yeah.、Mm -hmm. 
Um, but previous to watching these movies, were, was commercial cinema um, what you were used to? I would, did, did these movies open your eyes to a new idea of what making cinema could be? That's Dunlan. Yes, of, of course. course. For sure. 那主要就是因为我的年龄跟他们这一群正好。So uh, at the time when we were watching these films, of course these are uh, filmmakers that uh, some of them actually went abroad to study. And uh, Yang Dechang is sort of an anomaly in that case that, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Edward Young. That's how you remember it. So Edward Young uh, was an anomaly because he was actually studying in some kind of science majors and uh, working computers, and then he actually just gave up all that practices and came back to Taiwan to just make film. And at the time, he was sort of in his 30s. So he was the anomaly because the, the rest of the, the group, the, a lot of them, they actually study films uh, abroad and then came back to Taiwan to make films. So the time that uh, the CMPC, which is the Central Motion Picture Company, actually uh, commissions uh, four directors that actually study films uh, abroad, uh, including Yang Dechang, although he uh, didn't study film abroad. So Yang Dechang, Ke Yijun, Tao Dechen, and then the fourth one, I can remember the, the name. And then, so they will make films uh, together as a group. And then they also, uh, CNPC also commissioned, on the other hand, the so-called Taiwanese directors that, that they will stay uh, nat nativist movements. And they put together three Taiwanese directors. So that will be Zhen Zhuangxiang, Cao Ren, and myself to make film for them. So I think uh, at the time, sort of after Second World War, you have all these European new cinema. And I do think that not only we were inspired by the way that they make films, but also at the time that technology-wise, the, the camera that we use and also the whole idea of the aspect ratio going from the previously the CinemaScope to now 1 to 1.85. And then the camera we're using from the previous one for the CinemaScope, you will use those compressed lenses. And now you have other lenses that you can use. Pretty much it, it, for the candlelight in the past, the compressed lenses, you cannot you actually catch the, the, the minute details of the lights. And you have to actually have a lot of different lighting designs in order for you to somehow capture the, the image. Whereas for the new technology, the new camera they were using uh, at the time uh, in Taiwan, just started to use those new cameras and um, a new way of shooting films. It's because uh, because that um, we don't have to somehow set up all those different things in order for, for us to shoot. Whatever you see with your eyes, you can actually capture with with the, the cameras that you use and the lenses you use. So uh, that really fundamentally changed the way we make films in Taiwan, and we were just catching up, and definitely all these films are very, very influential. So let's look at that first clip. The amazing thing to, the eternally amazing thing about that film is that as you watch it, you'd see him breaking every rule imaginable um, in, in, in movie making. And I would imagine, I think that that was very freeing for generations of directors, the idea that you could do non-sync sound, that you could jump, you know, obviously that's the most famous part of the movie, the jump cuts, but then also the playing with rhythm, uh, the shifting in emotional registers and address to the audience. Uh, it's, it's, it must be very freeing to be a young filmmaker and to see that. Uh. 这个片子最大的影响就是我拍《呃风归来》的人
So definitely this film had a huge influence on how I actually put together my first really departure from the commercial films, and which is The Boys from Feng Gui. And when I uh, made this film, uh, when I was editing this film, along with my uh, other, uh, collaborators, that uh, we, dis we actually saw this film, and that really inspires to think about to incorporate the, the jump shot, uh, the jump cuts into the, the editing process. Because in the past, the conventional way, of course, you start with a long shot, and then the middle shot, and with a close up. But here, you with the exact same position, then you can do these jump, jump cuts or jump uh, jump cuts uh, to somehow uh, bring up the emotions of the characters or the stories that you want to portray. So that's the reason why when we start putting together and editing Boys from Feng Gui, we uh, put in a lot of jump cuts into this particular film. Um, I want to go to the next clip directly, which is if the next film is Edward Young, A Brighter Summer Day, and maybe we'll show the clip and then discuss it. <laughs> How long has it been since you've seen that film? Mm. Oh, a long, long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> mm. um, I guess I want to ask you about how you feel now looking back on the question of you and Edward Young and the other filmmakers dealing with history. You're dealing with the past that really hadn't been dealt with before in cinema. And about your approach to that and what made, and, and Edwards, how they were similar and how they were different. So I think at the time when we were hanging out and we were hanging out and we will be talking about what we're going to make as filmmakers and one thing that we agree is to make our own story from our own perspective to depict our own reality. So that's why um, uh, when you look at this particular film, A Brighter Summer Day by Edward Young, and this is actually his own personal uh, experience in the past, and this is a story about his high school and uh, also a very, very sensationalized news at the time about this particular incident. So he really took clues uh, from this particular incident and then start putting together a lot of different contextual uh, scenes and information, including the, the different concert halls that with Western musics. And then uh, one thing I remember the most is this little boy singing. And then everybody was just so enchanted by him. And also in this film, you see Zhang Zhen, which is also the, the actor for Nian Liang, uh, the main lead. Uh, he was 14 years old at the time, and he's, he was already very, very good looking. And uh, so I do think that that sense of realism, that, that the way to make our own film about ourselves, about our own reality, we reflect on the films I had made later on, including A Time to Live, A Time to Die, also uh, Boys Fang Feng Gui, as I mentioned before, and also later on uh, uh, Dust in the Wind. So I do think that uh, just to recap what I mentioned before about those European filmmakers that after World War II, they're going through the new wave uh, cinema in Taiwan because of the change of te technology and the change of uh, different way to make films. And we really start to see this as a great opportunity to make films that uh, since whatever we can see with our eyes, we can now put it on film. 
as well. There's another film that I'm thinking of that we're not showing a clip from, but it, that I know is a favorite of yours, which is The Godfather by Coppola. Mm -hmm. And the reason I'm bringing it up in relation to Edward's film and also in relation to your own work is because the way of shooting and the sense of detail in the background always is so present that the foreground and the background often become collapsed. Um, that you're, you're uh, just as you were saying that the jump cut meant a lot to you with Godard, I have the sense that also that way of seeing deep so that your attention is drawn um, to the characters in the foreground and to all the activity in the background was very important. I wasn't that bright at the time uh, when I watched this film uh, to pick up on things that you mentioned. And in fact, that, uh, in terms of Godfather, I actually started reading uh, the novel uh, when I was 15, when I was in middle school, and remember that uh, the, the novels will be broken up, broken up into different uh, small pieces and it will be published in Reader's uh, Digest. And that's the first time I actually read a story. And later on, uh, when I watched the film, I already have the story in mind. That I'm very, very familiar with the story, you know, what was going to happen when you know, walking through on the rooftop and then with the assassination, that's what's going to happen. So to me, actually, when I watched uh, Godfather at a time, and the most uh, important thing to me uh, that drew me to the film is the story. And the narrative is definitely something I focus on. I didn't really think about the foreground, the background. So to me, I think the reason why that you see the, the, the dynamics that, that you describe in the foregrounds and backgrounds in my films, it has a lot to do with the way I think about what does it mean to make a film, a uh, realistic film that honor this concept of realism. And at the time, the, the actors, and whether or not they are professional actors or non-professional actors, that, that they, they didn't really act the way that I wanted to act in a very, very naturalistic, realistic way. So in order for me to overcome that, I had to actually create a, a realistic environment for them to then uh, somehow immerse themselves into the characters and then do the things I want them to do. So uh, for example, if uh, there's a scene, I, my favorite scenes that I want, I want my actors to do is to eat. So if this were to be a scene about eating, I will actually film this particular scene when it's time to eat. So what I will do is that uh, I will make sure that they will be hungry and then I will have catering chef in and I will actually have them eat very, very freshly made food on the table. And then while they are eating in their natural state and I will somehow remind them that this character now is somehow going through something that is very depressing, something that is bothering him or her and then hopefully then they will make that adjustment while they are eating. So again, it's this idea to honor the, how do you honor the actual naturalistic realism through the actors and actresses that you're using. And the other example will be uh, one particular film, I don't remember the name of it, the mother is at home prepping for lunch, and of course that will be around noon, and then suddenly you see this boy, uh, her son, coming back. And of course that would really tell you that something is wrong because that's not supposed to time for the boy to come home uh, because it's not any of the, the, the class periods yet. So to me, that's the reason 
why I am setting everything the way that I, I do or I did is because to me, the atmosphere not only is the important thing, this idea of time uh, uh, is also important. So when I put together the organize the mise-en-scene, I always will have these in mind. How can I be as realistic as possible, not only taking into the spatial, but also temporal and also atmosphere into uh, components into consideration. Let's go to the clip from Floating Clouds. Um, it's, it's very common uh, for people to speak of your films in relation to Ozu, but um, you chose a clip by another Japanese filmmaker, Naruse. And um, this particular film is so um, unusual because it's so, the harshness of it is unrelenting in the relationship between the two of them. So it's a movie about two people who are very much in love and absolutely unhappy from start to finish. It's also a film that I think could only take place in the immediate post-war era in Japan. And so I was wondering if you could discuss your own impressions of it and what it is about the film that's so important to you. So actually, I do enjoy Ozu's films. Um, and I do think that um, all these films... Um, the reason why I actually selected Naruse's film is because I find it very, very familiar. I grew up in a, uh, a household that uh, actually is a Japanese-style household in terms of the, my home, the design and architecture. And also, as you may know, that Taiwan was occupied by Japan for 50 years. So a lot of things I observed from these films are things that are very, very familiar to me growing up. And I do think that personality-wise, I, I actually prefer uh, Naruse's films, and uh, his film is all about what happened after Second World War, and people feeling adrift, people feeling a sense of hopelessness. And these films, uh, especially the ones that actually uh, is an adaptation of the novel by Fumiko Hayashi, and uh, the story is just so bleak and so touching and moving at the same time. Uh, if you haven't seen this film, at the end, uh, the female character actually killed herself and, uh, on this particular island where his, uh, I'm sorry, where her boyfriend was. And the, the boyfriend wasn't really a serious uh, person that uh, was more or less a playboy and with a lot of other uh, girls involved. But at the same time, it's like at, at her death, he still uh, somehow showed some compassion at the end of some love and emotions by putting uh, lipsticks uh, on her um, after she already passed. So I, things like this that really uh, touched me more so uh, than other uh, Ozu films. And I do think that uh, Naruse as a director has this uh, king ability to somehow depict how emotion, human emotion, human relations change because of the society. In this particular case, will be after Second World War. And again, this sense of hopelessness of these characters just being portrayed so delicately and also very, very movingly on screen. And that's why I uh, selected this film. One, uh, actually, one of the other things about Naruse's films that I think is so special is that he has a very, very keen sense of um, the worry about money. 
this is a, 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 in, in all of his movies, there's a real economic a reality about, um, about money and about you know, how difficult it is, how people worry about paying their bills. It's something that's very, very, um, something that you know, is very common to life. And mm -hmm. it's, it's very important in his films in a way that it isn't in a lot of other people's. As I mentioned, uh, Naruse's film is really about the, the reality uh, after Second World War in Japan. And I do think that money is one issue, but it's not just about money issues. That people are dealing with the harsh realities on so many different levels. They are really living a harsh life after the war. And especially for you to want to be involved in a love relationship, there are other things that are definitely involved that will be even harder to manage. For me personally, uh, I was, when I was young, I, I, I knew how to hustle. And I got by just, just fine. I gamble, I was still, uh, money and from the household, I will actually sell certain household products or pawn them to somehow get by. So I, I do think that uh, deep in my heart, even though that was sort of this petty thug uh, at the time, but I had been always be uh, avid readers uh, of literature and also a big fan of films. And I really think that these two things, films and novels, really uh, guide me in such a way that I didn't eventually uh, went down to the end of that dark path that I can easily actually embark and also end with. So uh, I do think that that's my saving grace that uh, the films and the novels that uh, somehow brought me to where I am today. And you can't imagine the length and the, the ways that I actually trying to see films growing up. I remember that uh, I will see every single film being released uh, and shown in the theater. And I just, I just need to find a way to get in there. So when I was very, very young, so this is when I was a boy, what I can do is I will pretend that I was someone else's kid. And I will somehow tuck the shirts of, the, of an adult and then pretend that I was with them. So that I will got into the theater for free. And then later on in middle school, um, I'm a little bit bigger and uh, no longer be able to somehow pretend that it was somebody's children to get into the theater. So what I did is that I will somehow collect all the, uh, the ticket stubs on, on the floor and I will collect them and went home and I actually would stick them back together, glue them back together and I would t went to the theater and I would give, you t uh, give it to uh, the clerk. And of course they didn't pay attention to details and so they would just let me in and uh, took the fake ticket stuff. And then later on, uh, when I was in high school and also college, is I'm big enough, actually I can do something even more aggressive. So I will even climb the walls to go into a theater or I will cut through the fences to go see the films. So definitely, uh, uh, as I mentioned before, the literature films are really the things that actually guide me away from that dark path and then become who I am today. Um, I think it's a good time to go to the last clip, uh, which will be from Amarcord. We'll show the clip. I'm guessing that it's the 
the quality of memory in this film and of growing up in a small town that makes it so special for you? So this film not only because it's a, a memory piece, but also very much about this particular little town and all the eccentric characters that you can see and the, about families, about people that your loved ones and one particular character really, I remember the most is this uncle uh, characters that um, being brought back from a mental institution, I guess, back to the family house, and then he will be shouting on the rooftop, I want a woman, I want a woman. So uh, to me, this film, uh, even though it looks surreal, and almost like surrealistic, but at the same time to me, it is so real, so realistic, and it makes, uh, that's why it somehow uh, cross over to the surreal side. And I think that has a huge impact on how I make my um, films uh, a time to live and a time to die, and then also inspire me to look back on uh, my experience growing up and then make films about them. So I, yes, when I saw this film, I was very, very much inspired. So, uh, one particular instance that I remember after uh, somehow connecting to back to this Fellini film is that when I was shooting the boys from Feng Gui, and one particular character, uh, the, the protagonist, uh, in one particular scene that he was involving in a brawl, and he uh, took a brick and hit it on someone's head, and then he exit the frame on the left side. And then I actually directed him to actually come back again, went around, pick up another sticks, and went into the fight again, and then uh, drop the, the stick and exit again. So this idea of actually frame out and frame in is something that you're not supposed to do, that we've been taught in film school that uh, that's not how you do it, is you come and in and out from the same side of the frame. So to me, I think uh, uh, Fellini in this film really somehow um, broke that particular uh, conventional ways of doing things that you pretty much have freedom to do whatever you uh, desire and a will. And that really gave me a sense of freedom to think about that all those um, the dog, dogmatic ways of making films and conventional making film learning in film academy uh, is something that I can actually transcend and I can actually subvert. And that definitely gave me a sense of freedom and, uh, and therefore this film had a huge, huge influence on me. And I don't think that this is something the, the current contemporary filmmakers will experience because you probably already have a lot more freedoms and those type of dogmas that, that you don't carry with you. But at the time when we first started, these are the, the golden rules. These are really, really almost like the, the Bibles that you have to follow. And I uh, took cues from Fellini and I uh, just trying to break away from that. 
We have to finish, and I, I really want to thank you for doing this. And this, and this, thank, hey, you for thank you. Thank you. Is finish? Oh, yes. Thank you. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. <laughs>